Ambrose Bierce defined the future as that period of time in which our affairs prosper, our friends are true, and our happiness is assured. Well, I guess we can all be given a bit too much to wishful thinking about the future sometimes. And perhaps that should concern us, given how important the future is and what a lousy track record we have at predicting it. I ran across this sentence in the field of medicine, for instance. Louis Pasteur's theory of germs is ridiculous fiction. That was Pierre Pache, the professor of physiology at Toulouse in 1872. Or even in the realm of uh, inventions. Drill for oil? You mean drill into the ground to try to find oil? You're crazy. That's what the driller said to Edwin L. Drake in 1859, right before he dug the first successful oil well in the U.S., or this, the telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. The device is inherently of no value to us, said a Western Union internal memo in 1876. Or this statement by Charles H. Duell, Commissioner of the U.S. Patent Office in 1899, everything that can be invented has been invented. <laughs> Even in forward-looking aviation, Heavier-than-air flying machines are impossible, said Lord Kelvin, president of the Royal Society, in 1895. Would that Lord Kelvin had only waited a few years. Or airplanes are interesting toys but have no military value, said Marshal Folk, one-time professor of strategy and field marshal for France during World War I. Even in market-driven entertainment, where you would, real, you would think that the whole lifeblood of the thing flows upon knowing what the market wants, who wants to hear actors talk, said H.M. Warner of Warner Brothers in 1927. Or, I'm just glad it'll be Clark Gable who's falling on his face and not Gary Cooper, said Gary Cooper when he turned down the leading role in Gone with the Wind. Or this great statement by the manager of the Grand Old Opry in 1954. You ain't going nowhere, son, he said to Elvis Presley. Or in trend-sensitive business, the trade of advertising is now so near to perfection that it is not easy to propose any improvement, said Dr. Samuel Johnson in 1759. Stocks have reached what looks like a permanently high plateau, said Irving Fisher, professor of economics at Yale in 1929. And of course, that famous statement, the Edsel is here to stay, Henry Ford to dealers in 1957. Even in that field that we associate most of all with the future, I think, computers. I think there is a world market for maybe five computers, said Thomas Watson, chairman of IBM in 1943. Or computers in the future may weigh no more than one and a half tons. <laughs> Popular mechanics forecasting the relentless march of science in 1949. Or how about this one? I have traveled the length and breadth of this country and talked with the best people, and I can assure you that data processing is a fad, that it won't last out the year, said the editor in charge of business books at Prentice Hall in 1957. But what is it good for, said the engineer at the Advanced Computing Systems Division of IBM in 1968, commenting on the microchip. Or there's no reason anyone would want a computer in their home, 
said Ken Olson, president, chairman, and founder of Digital Equipment Corporation in 1977. Or 640K ought to be enough for anybody, said Bill Gates in 1981. <laughs> but we're not, we're not good at predicting the future. It's not one of the things that we have a great track record about. I don't mean to say that we never get it right. No, we do get it right sometimes. But as I say, given how important the future is, we don't seem to get it right often enough. After all, we're going to be caught up in the future. All the rest of the living will ever do will be in the future. And Americans, even though they're pessimistic, they say recent studies about our country as a whole, uh, we seem to be quite optimistic about our own personal future. doesn't matter how many negative things we say to the polls about what's going to happen to the country. We ourselves, most of us, seem to assume and feel that we will somehow be all right. But is, is that just whistling in the dark? Is that a, a full-grown hope we can live by? Or just a weak wish about the future? Well, that's where the Bible comes in. Our faith actually has a lot to do with the future and how we view it. And in our passage this morning, James has some more reliable prognostications to give us as we sail, as inevitably we must, into the future. Uh, the territory is not entirely uncharted. And in our text this morning, James has for us three facts that we need to know about the future. See if you can find them as we read our passage together, found on page 1,268 in your pew Bibles. 1,268. James chapter 4, beginning at verse 13, reading through chapter 5, verse 12. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look. The wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. 
You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, or finally, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else, but your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. The first fact about the future that we need to know is that the future is not ours. The future is not ours. Look there in verse 13. James sees that some of the people that he was writing to were having a problem with this. So he addressed them specifically. He says there in verse uh, verse 13 of chapter 4, he addresses those who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. You know that attitude. We take it for granted, even as we took for granted probably the sun rising this morning. So we think it will rise the same way again tomorrow. It's what we assume. In that sense, we very naturally assume that the future is ours and that it will be very much like the present. Do you assume that you will get up tomorrow and be greeted by a reality very similar to the one you know today? Well, in one sense, you must. All of our experience seems to confirm that. To do otherwise would be insane. But, in another sense, that's not true at all. And even the irreligious among us know it. Quite apart from biblical warnings, all of our experience tells us of how unlike tomorrow today may be. And how unlike today Tomorrow may well turn out. In November of 1986, where were you? Think for a moment. November of 1986, where were you? What were you doing? If you'd have been asked, would you have imagined what you would be doing in November of 1996? In some cases, probably so. But in many, many cases, probably not. No, life is full of unexpected turns, things that we simply can't know ahead of time. And then, of course, there is the most challengingly upsetting experience of death. We all know that apart from the Lord's return, we will all die. And everyone we know will die. And yet we so often seem so surprised by death, when it's more certain than employment. It's more certain than health. It's more certain than so many things that we seem to assume. Well, what is James's response to the seemingly innocent assumption of the future? Well, he confronts them with two aspects of the real situation. First, in verse 14, he points out to them their human temporality, that they will pass. It says in verse 14, Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. It is a little ironic that Abraham Lincoln's favorite poem was William Knox's, Oh, Why Should the Spirit of Mortal Be Proud? This rather morbid ode to mortality begins with Knox asking this question. Oh, why should the spirit of mortal be proud? 
like a swift fleeting meteor or fast flying cloud, a flash of the lightning, a break of the wave, man passeth from life to his rest in the grave. Lincoln would regularly read this poem to people when they would visit him. The leaves of the oak and the willows shall fade, be scattered around and together be laid, and the young and the old and the low and the high shall molder to dust and together shall die. The saint who enjoyed the communion of heaven, the sinner who dared to remain unforgiven, the wise and the foolish, the guilty and just, have quietly mingled their bones in the dust. They died, eh, they died, and we things that are now, who walk on the turf that lies over their brow, who make in their dwelling a transient abode, meet the things that they met on their pilgrimage road. Tis the wink of an eye, tis the draft of a breath, from the blossom of health, to the paleness of death, from the gilded saloon to the bear and the shroud, oh, why should the spirit of mortal be proud? Lincoln, as I say, would often read the full poem to them, and I've only read you five stanzas of what are more like 20 in this poem. Well, Cardinal Jean de Lagrange, who died back in 1402, put it even more bluntly. He had inscribed on his tomb for everyone to read above the effigy of his emaciated corpse, so miserable one, Why are you proud? You are only ash and will revert, as we have done, to a stinking cadaver, food and tidbits for worms and ashes. Well, I don't know if some of you are finding that humorous. Some of you are probably finding that morbid and revolting. That's typical, I have to tell you, of what was written on tombs in past days. People were aware of the reality of the passing nature of this life. And they were not shy about speaking of it or putting it where those who are living could see it so that we would not be wrongly proud. That's what James says to them here. What is your life? You are a passing mist. But James's response to their arrogant presumption of the future wasn't simply, you know, like that Kansas song, all we are is dust in the wind. He, He didn't say... Only that they too will pass. He said that. But he spoke not only of their own human impotence in the face of time, but also, positively, he spoke of God's power. God's sovereignty. God's being in charge of the universe, the future. Look at verse 15. He says, instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. We may say, we will live. We may say that, says James. We may say that we will do this or we will do that. But we must say it all under this rubric, if it is the Lord's will. That's the key phrase there. If it is the Lord's will. You see, the future is not ours. It's not ours. It is someone else's. It's not a a vast stretch of temporal territory as yet unclaimed. It is God's. It belongs to Him. So we should speak of it realistically. Many of you here uh, knew Dr. Joe Atchison far longer than I did. Uh, Joe and Juana joined this church 50 years ago. And as they prepared to leave on their trip to Australia last month, while I was preparing to go to Brazil, Joe wrote me a a letter, as he was often wont to do, 
in which he told me of the plans that they had, of the fact that he and Juana would be praying for me uh, as I went down to Brazil. And he shared the various things that they were hoping to do on the trip to Australia and New Zealand, including the times that he was planning on flying back to L.A. and to return to Washington. And then at the end of the paragraph, he wrote, All the above, the good Lord willing. All the above, the good Lord willing. Well, the good Lord willed some of it, but not all of it. The Lord called Joe home while he and Juana were in Australia. And Joe didn't make it to New Zealand. He didn't make it back to the States. But he knew he would do everything that the good Lord willed. And so he said it, just like James says here. Friends, it is not morbid or morose to state what is simply the fact that Joe here recognized. We do whatever we do only by the Lord's permission. According to the Bible, each breath that we draw is at the kind indulgence of God. Well, therefore, what should we do? Well, James says two things. First, we should not boast about the future as if we owned it. Verse 16, as it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. You see, speaking of the future too certainly is a tacit but clear grabbing of what is God's alone. It doesn't belong to us. It, it is our arrogant assigning to ourselves of a prerogative which is exclusively the Lord's. We must not live our lives on the basis of assumptions about the future which God has not authorized. To do so is to evilly arrogate to ourselves power and knowledge and wisdom which we don't have. So it's wrong. It's as James says here, evil to do that. It is insulting to God. And it is dangerous to ourselves as well. And James says that we cannot escape our responsibility to acknowledge that it is God that owns the future. He says in verse 17, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. If we know that we should expressly acknowledge the future, that that it is not ours, first of all, but that it is God's, as James has told us to do in verse 15, then not doing that, not acknowledging that, is sin. There's no two ways about it. We cannot avoid it. We must confess that the future belongs not to us, but to God. Now, practically, how do you do that? Well, I, for one, for for years, have made a practice of literally saying, Lord willing. When I speak of the future, and while I I, I don't think that obedience to James' teaching here necessitates you adopting this exact same practice, uh, I have certainly found it helpful in my own life, in my own speech, sort of rearing it as a monument in my speech, a reminder to me that I have to keep my hands off the future. So when I make a statement in the future indicative, I will, we will, uh, I try to teach myself to say, Lord willing. To remind myself that any plans I make that include the future must be, by very nature of the fact, it must be tentative. Because it is not mine to have in any other way than God may give it to me. I need to know that, and I need to remind myself of that. As one writer has said, to be obsessed with future plans may mark our failure to appreciate present blessings. 
or our evasion of present duties. You see, instead of this presumption of more time, we should learn from this that the present, this time, is real and precious. This is the time the Lord has given us to be a steward of now. Uh, yesterday is past. Tomorrow hasn't yet been given. It's, it's today that we have to use most certainly that we have to give our attention to. And young people especially, young people especially, don't look only to the future all the time. Don't let your mind be monopolized by thoughts of what will happen or by what you will do. Life is now. If you are wondering what your life will be like in the future, look at it in the present. For all of the things that change, there will be a lot of continuities. And God has called us to be stewards of today because he has given us right now today. The first fact James would teach us about the future is that the future is not ours. It belongs to God. But there is a second fact that James would teach us about the future. And that is that the future will bring judgment. James first states who he's addressing in chapter 5, verse 1. If you look at it, it says, just like he'd said up in 4.13, Now listen, you who say... Now here in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Now listen, you rich people. And he announces their distress to them in in verse 1 there. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Upton Sinclair, the novelist and social reformer, once actually took these first six verses of chapter 5, and he rewrote it as a paraphrase, but sticking very close to the text. And he went and he read it to a group of ministers. And he lied to them. He attributed it to Emma Goldman, who at the time was a very famous anarchist agitator. Well, these ministers got so upset and so enraged that they started demanding for the, um, for the, uh, the deportation of this lady who had written this stuff. And then, of course, Upton Sinclair told them, actually, it was in the Bible. James chapter 5, the first six verses. And in the tradition of the prophets, James here announces as most certainly true things which are not obvious at all. Think of it. I mean, rich people don't weep and wail. Rich people laugh. Rich people speak in loud, certain, confident tones as they make decisions about the future, as they decide to get this done, to build this and start that. They make requests and demand things. They they joke and they order. They coolly reflect or analyze. They plot and they plan, but they don't weep and wail. Someone in distress does that. Someone in need does that. In poverty, perhaps. But James here uses these imperatives. He says, weep and wail. And the the word for wail there is one of those words in in the Greek that is like, that sounds like the thing it's talking about. It's, uh, it's ololu, ololu, ololu. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Well, why should these people who are apparently so blessed be so distressed? Well, James gives three reasons for their distress in verses 2 to 6. The vanity of their wealth, the severity of the misery that's coming, and the seriousness of their sins which God will most certainly punish. Appearances, of course, can be deceiving. These rich people needed to know that. So when I had the privilege a few months ago of opening the synod in prayer, I asked God to remind all who work here 
in massive buildings which seem so permanent, remind them of the brevity of life and the certainty of judgment. Things which can seem so permanent, in fact, can be so passing. That's what James is saying here. He points out the vanity of their wealth in verse 2. Your wealth, he says, has rotted. The malls have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. No wealth of theirs seems to last. Neither splendid clothes nor even metals, which appear to be so enduring. All of this has rotted and been consumed and corroded. Their clothes have become moth food. The the very things which you assumed would accompany you into the future in the end actually seem to endure the passage of time less well than you yourself do. But they should be distressed, not simply because of what they will lose, but also because of the severity of their misery. Look at the second sentence there in verse 3. As he says right there in the middle of verse 3, not only will they lose all that they've lived for, their corrosion, that is of their gold and silver, will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. It's almost as if they have so identified themselves with their goods that as those goods decay, they will decay with them. God's judgment will come to those who are full of a false sense of security. And like that which they trusted in, they will not only be accused, but they will be consumed in their misery. Of course, this misery is not coming upon them because of their riches. You need to understand that. It's clear if you read the passage, it's coming upon them because of their sins. And notice the seriousness of the sins that are listed here. The summary is really there, I think, that that last sentence in verse 3. This is the charge against them. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. You have treasured up that which was meant to be spent. You have hidden in the most secure places, the most guilt-edged securities, that you have prized as your very own that which should have been shared. You have kept and concealed that which was meant to be given out and used up. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Well, he says specifically how they had done this. He says in verse 4 that they had withheld wages. Look at verse 4. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You see, they withheld the wages which they owed to people for work already done. Uh, the work from which they had derived their own wealth. This was slavery indeed, if not in name, wringing their wealth from the sweat of another man's brow. Honest work had been done by others. Their fields had been mown. But the wages? Well, well, the wages, instead of being paid, they were being kept. Kept back. Hoarded. Kept for their own purposes. And now God is saying through James that the cries of these unpaid wages from within the rich man's own coffers and bank accounts, where no doubt he thought they had been safely hidden, their cries have united together with the cries of the cheated harvesters themselves, and he says have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. And he charges them with the most consuming selfishness in verse 5. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. 
You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Their current lives of luxury and self-indulgence manifested the centrality of their self-obsession. Their gold and their girth both spoke of what they took to be most important, themselves. And we, we just can't sit here because we're in church on Sunday morning and just look and think, yes, isn't that terrible? Those evil people being so selfish. As if we're so removed from selfishness. Lloyd-Jones told the story of the farmer who reported to his wife the joyous news that their cow had just given birth to twins. And since he was expecting only one calf, he decided that in thanks he would give one to the Lord. He said, we're going to raise these two calves together and one of them will be the Lord's calf and the other will be our calf. And when they grow old enough to sell, uh, then we'll sell one and give the proceeds to the church. Well, his wife asked, which one is the Lord's calf? He said, well, it doesn't matter. They're identical. Well, he raised them together. And they grew. And the two calves prospered. But one day, the farmer came into the house with a long face. What's wrong? His wife asked. The farmer said, the Lord's calf has died. What circumstances have we met that we do not try and turn to our own advantage? Sometimes even unjustly. Even at the expense of God himself. Or of creatures made in his image. This brings us to the last specific charge that James had made against these rich folk in verse 6. It is murder. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. It seems that their selfish greed had, had, as too often is the case, had worked itself out tragically to the point where not only did these wealthy ones deprive others of their wages, but even of life itself. Don't be surprised at the blinding arrogance of greed. Let me say that one more time. Don't be surprised at the blinding arrogance of greed. Now, these rich folk may well have thought that they had gotten away with it all. I mean, after all, the harvest is over, the crops are in. So what can happen now? Likely the goods had been sold, the wealth had been made. There they sat, secure, with all of their holdings, only to be pried out of their hands by the most costly of lawsuits, which I'm sure he knew the poor harvesters certainly couldn't afford. So now they would simply sit back and tell themselves that they deserved it all and enjoy their luxury and indulge themselves. But James was saying to these rich people that they were as clueless as gluttonous turkeys gobbling food the day before Thanksgiving. He says there in verse 5, You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have made yourselves ripe for judgment even when judgment is about to come. Now, these rich people probably assumed that because they didn't see God's judgment already, they would never see it. Uh But that's another one of those assumptions about the future. And that's not a good assumption. That because you've never seen God do something before, therefore you know God won't do that. The story is told of another farmer 
who was a strong atheist and who took particular delight in mowing his fields during the time of the church service. There was a church across the street from where his fields were. So he would deliberately get on his tractor and plow during Sunday mornings. Plow while everybody was singing the hymns. Plow loud enough for everybody to be able to hear. Well, the summer went by and then harvest. And this man, as I say, an outspoken atheist, wrote a letter to the local newspaper in which he said triumphantly, all summer long when the others were in church observing what they call the Lord's Day, I had been working in my fields. God has not punished me for my action. In fact, not only have my crops succeeded, but I've even been able to raise more crops than those who rested one day of the week. He concluded the letter with a defiant, what do you say to that? Well, the editor of the paper uh, printed his letter in full. And then at the very bottom, he gave a brief response. God does not settle his accounts in October. Friends, our God is an eternal God. The mere fact that you have not yet perceived God's judgment on your sins in the past does not mean that the past is unreal or that the past has vanished or that God has forgotten. The Bible is clear in teaching that the past is real and must be dealt with. That's why we don't preach that Jesus was simply a teacher, an example who's come to show, show us how to live. No, we listen to what Jesus said when he taught that we need more than instruction and education. We actually need forgiveness and new life. Jesus came as a sacrifice to die for sin, the sins of all those who would ever turn and trust in him. And we need to take that into account because of the second fact that James tells us about the future. The future will bring judgment for sins. You have been warned. Proceed at your own risk. Third and final fact. You may be wondering at this point, so the Bible's take on the future is pretty pessimistic, huh? Kind of like what O'Brien says to Winston in George Orwell's 1984. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. Only perhaps James has identified the wearer of the boot as God. No, I don't think so. Because James is clear about a third fact that we need to know about the future. While the future will bring judgment for all those who are in their sins, for all who are in Christ, the future will bring deliverance. For all who are in Christ, the future will bring deliverance. In the two previous sections that start at 4.13 and 5.1, you know, he said who he's been writing to. Now to you who say, now to you who are rich. Look who he's writing to here, though, in chapter 5, verse 7. Here, James is clearly talking to brothers. So while there is judgment for those who remain in their sins, for those who are brothers who have repented of their sins... And believed in Christ, the future will bring deliverance. And so James exhorts them to be patient. And he gives them examples of patience. He employs those techniques that every good teacher knows. He tells them and he shows them. He tells them and he shows them. He exhorts them to patience there in verses 7 to 9. In a real powerful way where he keeps intensifying it. He says in verse 7, uh, Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. And then he throws in that example in the second sentence in verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains? I can plainly see, plainly see this, James says. It's indisputable 
that patience is a normal and necessary part of life. So he gives his second command and warning then in verse 8. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. You see, he takes the same thing he said in verse 7 and now he intensifies uh, the command and the warning. He, he adds, and stand firm to that command to be patient. Uh, he, he realizes this patience that he's telling him to have won't come easily. It's going to have to stand up to a lot. It must withstand the assault of hostile circumstances. And he gives them even greater encouragement. He doesn't simply mention the Lord's coming as he did in verse 7. No, do you notice what he adds? Look at it there in verse 8. How's it different than verse 7? He says, the Lord's coming is near. How near? Well, look at how God worked in sending Jesus as the Messiah after carefully preparing a people for it. Centuries of waiting. Yes, I know that. But then, sudden fulfillment. How near? Well, I think we can say near enough. Anyway, James goes on and intensifies it even more in verse 9, where he gives a third command and warning. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. He exhorts them specifically to patience with each other in this trying time and warns them that the alternative to that kind of patience is to be judged. And this time he doesn't merely mention that the judge is coming, nor that he's nearly here. He says, the judge is standing at the door. Well, after telling them they need to be patient, then he gives them examples of patience. He mentions the persevering prophets there in verse 10. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. Many of the saints in the Old Testament had to endure incredible suffering. And they did so with remarkable patience. And of course, when you mention patience, who are you going to think of? Job. That's what he says in the second sentence in verse 11. Job was a wealthy and upright man who had his livestock either destroyed or stolen. His children were killed. His health was broken. And yet, even through all that, Job persevered in faith. And so he became a pattern. James says, you have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. And notice that motivation which James presents in the very end of verse 11. That's the mercy of God. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. In the end, all we can rely on when we look into the future is God himself. God has shown himself. The future is his. Judgment is his. Deliverance is his. And he has revealed himself as a God of compassion and of mercy. Well, he especially applies this in the last verse, verse 12, to their speech. He says, above all, finally, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else, but your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. As one old writer put it, let your answer be given nakedly, simply, absolutely. Let your word be what it is. And take care to do what you say. Anything more than that, he says, tends to evil because it's either profanity or it's lying and deception or it's needless words, which simply work to evacuate speech of meaning. It is God who holds the future, not us. It is his to judge and it is his to deliver. And we can't change all that by strengthening our language. We can't change that by adding a curse here. Or a promissory swear there. So even in the way we speak, we should keep our own position before God 
as a creature before our Creator. Now, of course, the whole reason that James can exhort these Christians to patience is because God is real. And the future is real, and so our hope is real. Sometimes if we can't see it, or we can't feel it, or we can't taste it, or we can't hold it, then we feel it's not real. But God knows that that is wrong. And so he calls us to patience. Just like we would a child. Just like a parent often has to tell a child, exhort a child to patience. Just like farmers know with their crops. Or you, when you've gone out and sown your grass seed. Because you don't look out 15 minutes later, you don't assume it's not real. You know that you need to have patience. You've seen that in your own experience. The future is real. And for us as Christians, we know that it's the future that holds our hope. That, in a sense, even as these previous ones were boasting in the future or spending their wealth on themselves were wrong in assuming what they did about time, now we as Christians need to realize that time is on our side. We are living as children of the future coming age, like we were thinking about in Bible study on Wednesday night. We need to lean into that and know that. We need to know that in a very real sense, for all of those who are in Christ, the future will bring deliverance. That's a fact about the future that can give you hope this week if you're in Christ. So there it is. Bit of a long sermon. Good introduction, though. Interesting quotes at the beginning. Had a lot of punch. But you know the reason those quotes at the beginning had punch? It's because you knew what happened. It's only because you were certain of what the real case was. One day, you will be every bit as immediately certain of these three facts that James has told us about the future. I know the future can be hard. We struggle with it. We're com- We presume time when we shouldn't. And so James has told us fact number one, that the future is not ours, it is God's. We are complacent in our own comfort. So James tells us fact number two, the future will bring judgment. We cannot simply assume that our own pleasure exactly coincides with God's. And we are impatient with our problems. So James reminds us of fact number three. For all who are in Christ, the future will most certainly, with no doubt whatsoever, bring deliverance. In conclusion, putting it all together in my last sentence, the future will bring judgment. So our past must be forgiven and the present taken as a special stewardship from God. Let's pray together. Lord, teach us in our hearts in a way that we will know the reality of our sins. Teach us, Lord, the good news of Jesus, how we can gain forgiveness for those sins and be rescued from this present evil age. And give us wisdom, Lord, how to live in the present in a way that brings glory and honor to you. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.